Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it finally happened. The Washington Redskins announced that they're changing their name. For this season, they'll be known as the Washington Football Team, which is actually more creative than their style of play. The name change comes amid the destruction of statues across the land. Everything that might possibly be offensive must be destroyed. Stoking the fires of racial and religious division, Sean King called for the destruction of statues and stained glass images of Jesus and his mother. These Christian symbols are tools of oppression and racist propaganda. The fervor behind such iconoclasm is rooted in a new fundamentalism. Nathaniel Blake calls it symbolic purges of the inherited wickedness of the past. Language of inherited wickedness immediately gets my attention. Instead of using the term original sin, the Lutheran confessions prefer the term inherited sin, Erbsünde in German. But original sin is making a comeback in the language of the culture wars. Jim Wallace wrote a couple years ago a book called America's Original Sin, with the subtitle, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. There are plenty of places to study and debate the meaning of America and her founding principles. The pulpit is not the appropriate vehicle for that. But here, Wallace is making a specifically theological statement that racism and white privilege are America's original sin. His mistake is not in being too radical. He's not radical enough. The problem is not in America's founding. The problem, the original sin, is far deeper and far more perverse and corrupt than we can imagine. Symbolic purges won't cleanse our sins. Smashing statues can never liberate us. Changing the name of the local football team is a marketing strategy. It may propitiate the mob for a time, but there is no redemption there. Our inherited wickedness goes back before 1776, 1619 or 1492. Our inherited wickedness stretches back beyond the tyranny of popes and emperors, beyond the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt, beyond even the wickedness that precipitated the great flood of the ancient world. We inherited the wickedness of our first parents. Their crime was not in eating fruit. Their original sin was in turning away from the Creator's word and purpose. Our first father rejected who God made him to be. The Antifa anarchists trying to burn down our cities have nothing on him. Adam is the original anarchist. And even if we could go all the way back and find a statue of Adam, pull it down and smash it to bits, we still would not purge ourselves of the original sin. The inherited wickedness is not so easily removed. It is in us. We didn't start the fire, sang Billy Joel, but he's wrong. Adam 
was the entire human race. In him, we sinned. The contagion of his rebellion flows through your veins. It's why you lust, why you are greedy. It's the source of your narcissism, your anger, your love of gossip, and all the rest of your wretched, hidden, and secret sins. We can pull down all the statues, burn all the cities, and still we won't have eradicated the problem. The problem is in us. Our Lutheran confessions put it this way, knowledge of original sin is a necessity, for we cannot know the magnitude of Christ's grace unless we first recognize our malady. The entire righteousness of the human creature is sheer hypocrisy before God, unless we admit that by nature the heart is lacking love, fear, and trust in God. The entire righteousness of the human creature, that is, everything that you think is good about yourself, it's all sheer hypocrisy. You accuse others of lawlessness, but the lawlessness is in you every time you disregard God's law. In today's epistle, God's word describes our natural condition as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. All the things that have enslaved you, the anxiety, the lust, the seething resentment, the thought that one more purchase or one more drink will solve your problems, has any of that profited you? It leaves you with nothing. All the devil's promises are empty. All the world's allurements are traps. We humans have not just fallen into bad behavior. We've fallen into meaninglessness. The rich splendor of the garden has become a desolate place with no food. In today's gospel, that desolate, barren land is not only the location of the 4,000 Gentiles who came to Jesus. It's symbolic of our world situation. Fears of nuclear annihilation or ecological catastrophe are a projection of what our world already is, a wasteland. We've wasted our world. We've wasted the life God gave us. The line, teenage wasteland, in the Who's Baba O'Reilly, was inspired by Woodstock. Pete Townsend describes the absolute desolation of teenagers at Woodstock, where audience members were strung out on acid and 20 people suffered brain damage. He lamented the fact that people thought that the line, they're all wasted, was some kind of happy statement. It's threnody for the victims of our meaningless culture. 50 years later, are we any better? We've lost as a culture even our motivation to send our kids to school. But these are mere symptoms. T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is more comprehensive. That corpse you planted last year in your garden, Eliot asks, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? No. Our corpses do not bloom. The dead stay dead. So he has this haunting line, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. 
Go to the graveyard. There, you see your end. We are in the wasteland, exhausted, dying. Jesus says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. They're doomed. We are doomed. But here is what changes everything. Into the wasteland comes Jesus. Which is to say, into the world we've ruined comes God. A God who assumes our flesh. He goes into the desert. He confronts the devil. He grows hungry. He is betrayed. He stumbles. This God bleeds. This God dies. It's all driven by the words of Jesus in today's gospel. I have compassion on the multitude. What does this mean? He has compassion on you. He knows the wickedness in you, and he knows the wickedness you've inherited. He knows your hypocrisy. He knows who you are. He knows what you have done. And this is his verdict on you. I have compassion. That's your God. In him is the atonement a mad, anxious world needs. He feeds the crowd with an anticipation of the Eucharist. He took the loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. All that's left is the fulfillment. This is my body, given for you. And he sends them home. To do what? To be faithful sons and daughters, faithful husbands and wives, faithful fathers and mothers. That's sanctification. To live the life of God's holiness right there in your home, in your stations. Now that you have been set free from sin, Paul says, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You are sanctified. You are the object of Christ's compassion. Changing names will not solve the problem, but Jesus gives us, our team, a new name, Christian incorporated into Christ. That's who you are in Christ, risen from the dead, living and reigning to all eternity. That's what you shall be, risen from the dead, with him to all eternity. In the name of Jesus. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess the creed.